0: last week, we looked at how a Christian is supposed to respond to injustice, because there's lots of injustice in the world. And we're in First Peter, and, and we're just continuing through the book of First Peter. You guys keep on distracting me, so we're not able to go through the book as quick as I would like to. So if you don't, we got a lot to cover today, and it's a lot of good stuff. So don't distract me today. I'd like to get through it. And what Peter says is that we are to honor authority. We are to honor authority. And we live in a day and age where we do not see people that honor authority. And even believers, Christians, are starting to act just like the world. We justify us acting evil and saying evil things because other people are acting that way. And Peter says that we are supposed to be doing good. And when we do good, it actually shuts up foolish and ignorant people. That Jesus is our example. And we're going to see that where we left off last week. Peter goes on to tell us that in a sinful world, we will all experience injustice and that part of a Christian's ministry under the pressures of an evil world is, to, is suffering. And like I said last week, I would not be a good pastor if I didn't prepare you for suffering. We live in a fallen world and we, there is suffering in this world. There is pressures in this world. And through all of this, Peter continues to point to Jesus as our example. And as we jump back into 1 Peter, he explains that, what this example looks like. So in 1 Peter 22-25, through he says, He committed no sin. Peter's talking about Jesus. He committed no sin. You know what that means? Jesus is the greatest victim in history. Jesus is the greatest victim in history, but He doesn't live like a victim. He lives like a victor. He doesn't allow the circumstances that were done to Him become His identity. He is the Son of God whom the Father is well pleased. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He was talked wrongly against, He did not return with the same type of communication. That's what that's saying. How often do we follow the example of Jesus? He says, when He suffered... He did not threaten, but continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like, strain like sheep, but now return to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. He says that all of us are guilty of sin. And sometimes, even the suffering that we experience really is because of something we have done. (laughs) We're the cause of a lot of our suffering. But here's Jesus. Jesus is perfect. He has a perfect life. And here's everything that He endured. And everything He endured was completely unjust. It was completely unjust. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, people said horrible things about him. He did not jump on social media. He didn't flamethrow the person. He didn't curse. He didn't attack. He didn't find the comments, comment section in the blog and, and, or start a hater website. I can't believe how many hater websites there is towards people in the church. And they call themselves Christians. These watchdog sites and all that stuff. My goodness. He did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. What did he do? He continued trusting God. See, to be a Christian means we need not just consider what others have done to us But we need to consider what was done to Jesus. We need to consider what was done to Jesus. So often we are so focused on what's being done to us and we forget what was done to Jesus. And we need to respond to others the way that Jesus responded. It says, "...He bore our sins in His body on the tree." cursed, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. There's a lot we can talk about there. We have a whole, I have a whole series on healing. But what basically what He's saying is that Jesus took care of the sin issue and Jesus took care of the curse issue at the cross. You're different now. And we don't need to act like everyone else. It says, for you were straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. We're all sheep. We follow whatever. Everyone's a, a, a sheep. We, you, you follow whatever news channel that you prefer. You follow whatever um, social media influencer we prefer. We follow whatever political leanings we prefer. We're all sheep. And Jesus is the only good shepherd if you're going to be a sheep, follow the good shepherd, the overseer of your souls. Because there are wolves everywhere. And the only way that we can be protected is being near to our shepherd. To be near to our shepherd. Because in the days that we're living in, we're going to have to stay real close to our shepherd. You're going to need to listen to the voice of the shepherd. You're going to need to follow the example of your shepherd. Because this world is broken and Jesus is the answer. And if we allow the brokenness to break the church, then there is no answer for the world. Do you understand that? That's why the church has to stay close to the shepherd. And when it comes to suffering from evil people, we need to focus on what we have what we have done to Jesus not just what others have done to Jesus you know we need we need to remember Jesus example that that ungodly actions require godly a godly response we need to remember that non-christians can diagnose a problem but Jesus is the only answer and the only solution to our problem i mean he gets real personable here he says he says that he's the savior of of our sins. He's the forgiver of our sins. We're not innocent in all of this. We're not innocent. We we were unjust towards God. And so we need to remember that when people are unjust towards us. Right? And this takes us to chapter 3 and Peter brings brings it close to home. Actually, he brings it right home. He starts talking about how Christians should act in the marriage. So we're going to have fun this morning. For the Christian, we do not have perfect marriages, but we can have a real marriage. And we can take our real marriage to a perfect God. God. And our good, good God does perfect work, work through imperfect people. And that's really the only hope that we have in marriage. Is that God can do miracles through imperfect people. And I just want to start by saying that I believe in marriage. We're living in a culture that degrades marriage. Doesn't think marriage is important. They think that you need to live your life and then get married, that makes no sense to me at all. That that marriage is death, not life. I love marriage. I love being married. I believe that marriage is one of the greatest opportunities that God has given us to learn to be more like Jesus. Right? Because it's all about serving. It's about considering another. It's about selflessness in a world that encourages selfishness. Everything in First Peter that we've learned so far in First Peter 2 and 3 is how to honor those who, are, who we are under their authority. And how to honor those who are under our authority. It's all about honor. Right? And the issue of honor is one of the most important things And it's required to have a happy and a sustained marriage. There's a uh, psychologist, John Gottam. You can go check out his website. Um, He's one of the leading researchers in the earth on marriage. And he did a very comprehensive clinical study over a course of many years looking at couples in a controlled environment and trying to determine are there certain variables or factors that contribute to divorce, and if, if you go check that out, he's got like the four um, horsemen of, of the apocalypse of, of marriage that, that destroy, destroy marriages. Um, he actually can pr- predict divorce within 93 percent success rate. That's, that's, that's pretty incredible, right? And one of the four things that destroys marriages is what Peter's talking about here, and it's contentment. Contempt is when someone has no regard for you. They don't respect you. They have no honor for you. They don't appreciate you. I think we've all been around people that have contempt for us. And, and it just shows in their body language. It shows in their tone of their voice. It just permeates through how they respond to us. And when contempt is present in marriage, ultimately your marriage is in the process of dying. The reason that I tell you this is because in First Peter, he's going to give us the antidote for the poison of contempt. And that antidote is honor. If you respect, honor, regard, cherish someone, it actually enables you to fight against contempt which is ultimately out to destroy your marriage. Contempt is when you literally criticize the worst thing about your spouse. Honor is when you're encouraging the best things about your spouse. And what it is, it's calling them to the fullness, the fullness of who they could be and the kind of relationship that you could have if both of you would honor God by honoring one another, we're going to read Peter's instructions for married couples, where one Christian—the first one he talks about—is one Christian, one one couple, person in the one spouse is a Christian, and one is an unbeliever. That's a difficult circumstance, and he's going to have specific things to say to wives and how they should honor their husbands. And then he's going to say the final word for husbands, how to honor their wives. So he kind of hits everyone. He hits um, couples that where one's a believer and one's not a believer. Then he talks to, to wives in general. And then he closes with the husbands. So he hits every kind of marriage. It says, likewise, So there's that word likewise. Again, that word likewise, it's tying to us, tying this passage of Scripture to what we've just learned. And what did we just learn? We learned about honoring those in authority. Right? He says, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word, by the conduct of their wives, when they see your your respectful and pure conduct. Peter just said that if you don't, you know, we just we just in the in the last last couple of messages in in um, chapter one and chapter two, Peter is basically saying that if you do not want your society to look like hell, you need to act like Jesus. <laughs> And now he's about to say, if you don't want hell in your home, you need to act like Jesus. He says, wives be subject to your own husbands. Notice what it says. Wives be subject to your own husbands. It does not say, women be subject to men. You understand that? There's a lot of churches that don't. (laughs) So that even if... Some of them do not obey the word. So this is a Christian woman married to a non-Christian man and, and that they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. So he's talking about here is a specific marriage where the, where the wife knows Jesus and the husband doesn't know Jesus. And this makes it a very complicated set of circumstances. If you're a believer, this is your pastor being mean, I guess, don't marry anyone who's an unbeliever. You're setting yourself up for heartache. You're setting yourself up for pain. You're setting yourself up for failure. If you're a believer, ultimately, you can't build a life together if you have two separate foundations. If you love Jesus... If you believe the Bible and they don't love Jesus and they don't believe the Bible, then whatever you build is going to have a hard time staying up because of the foundation is not the same. A single Christian should not even consider a romantic relationship with somebody who's a non-believer. Why? Because that is not God's best for you. It's not God's best for you. Your father... (laughs) just. Your father loves you. You are his daughter. And he wants the best for you. And he knows what is the best for you. But the problem is, is that this, this does happen. See, the, 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 they don't understand Jesus. They don't understand the Bible. And if they don't understand Jesus and they don't understand the Bible, how can they really understand you? Right? Right? And this happens, and this happened in, in Peter's time. M- many of these people, um, these women were converts to Christ, coming out of paganism, and the, and the, and the husband did not come along. Peter tells us that, this, this spouse, that, that, that the spouse is a Christian billboard in front of their non-believing spouse. You're a billboard for Christ. So you want to conduct yourself in such a way that you're showing the benefits and the blessings of Jesus in the Bible in hopes that your spouse will come to be open to Jesus in the Bible. The culture that Peter is writing to, the husbands were really the ultimate authority in the home. This is the culture that Peter was writing to. That the men were the ultimate authority in the home. The wife didn't have the same legal rights as we see now in the Western world. And what you need to understand is that wherever Christianity spreads, the equality of women and the rights of women are elevated. I preached a great message called Hot Mess. Look it up. The church has made a hot mess of these daughters of God. And it's time for them to take their place in the body of Christ like never before. But this is this was the do you understand that that everywhere that Christianity is preached, women's equality is elevated. And where Christianity does not spread, the exact opposite is true. Go to Iran. Go to the Middle East. Go to Asian countries. Go. There, 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 there are places in, in the Far East where daughters born to their, their, their fathers are nothing more than something to be bought and sold with. Thailand, Thailand and Bangkok and all those areas. It's horrible. And Christianity is the only solution for this evil that is in our world. But in that day, Christianity hadn't spread. So a wife, the woman, at that time, she couldn't own property. She couldn't vote. She couldn't testify in court. She was really in some regards considered the property of her husband. Furthermore, in the context, the husband was the one who would make all the religious decisions for the family. He would decide what their religion was and how they would practice it. And she really had no say in the matter. She was just to be one that was sort of silent and just sort of found the leadership of her husband. And this puts her in a very difficult position. She had, and what it says here is that she has talked to the, to the husband about the Lord because it says that he won't obey the word. He won't obey the word. That means that he has heard the word. The only way you can choose not to obey the word is if you're you've heard the word and you choose not to obey it. So what she's done is basically let's just say in today's terms is that she's bought them a Bible. She's taken them to church, she's talked to them about Jesus. She bought some books that they could read together about Christianity. She's tried to introduce Jesus into the conversation. But he's just not willing to obey the Word of God. See, oftentimes men they have a hard time coming to Christ for the very simple reason is that men, especially in this particular cultural context, they like being in authority. And they don't want to come under anyone's authority. I don't want anyone to tell me that I'm wrong, I don't want anyone to tell me I need to change. If I come to Jesus, I'm not the ultimate authority. See, that's what's great about false gods. You can make them say and do whatever you want. (laughs) If I accept the Bible, I'm going to have to change some things in my life. And that's true. But it's the best changes that you'll ever make. So this is where it becomes a heart problem and a will problem in the marriage. Which means that the way that the spouse who is a believer conducts themselves in their character is incredibly important. What he says is, you try to find ways to honor them, to love them, to encourage them, to serve them. Conduct yourself with such character that even if they are not being very kind to you, they're seeing that You're responding to them in a God-ordained way or manner. The goal in marriage, just like in life, is not to win the argument. It's to win the spouse. The goal is not to win an argument. The goal is to win the spouse. Which means that arguments do matter, but sometimes we choose Not to have arguments because ultimately our goal is to win the spouse. Until they know Jesus, all they're going to do is argue with you. So that's his instruction for those who are married to non-Christians. As a Christian. And if you are in that position, you're going to need a lot of prayer. You're going to need a lot of support. You're going to need a lot of love from the church family. Think about this. This was written to the churches. It was sent abroad. And each church probably read it like they were, like, probably like home churches. And as they're reading it, they're thinking to themselves, well, he's describing so and so in our midst. So, how does the church support a spouse that has an unbelieving? husband or an unbelieving wife. With love, with prayer, with support. The church needs to come together and do that as the body of Christ. And when I talk about the church, a lot of times you think, the pastor. No. The women of the church need to support the women, the woman... And the men of the church needs to go after the man. We need to pursue the man. We need to get involved. That's the church in action. That's what the church looks like. And we have to, we have to be very careful that we do not become a church that is just a bless me club. Where we, where we show up and I, I I get to worship, I get to get edified, and then I go home. No, we need to be a church that is in action. A church that's moving. A church that, that is living. A church that's a billboard for unbelievers. A church that gets involved in other people's lives. He then talks to wives, and he talks about wives who are believers married to believing husbands. So this is going to include a lot of you guys. And what she can do to honor her husband and diminish contempt in their marriage and allow it to be as healthy as possible. And so he says, this is the way for wives to honor their husband. He says, do not let your adorning be external. Your appearance is not the primary motive for a believer, but it's character. The braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. Peter gives a case study next. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, which is, which, which is, is a, there's a joke in our house that I told Amanda that uh, I have scriptural, scriptural uh, uh, proof that she's supposed to call me Lord. But anyways, <laughs> but what this was, this was a cultural thing, and it was a way that women showed respect to their husbands. And 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 and, uh, and then it says, "And you are her children, spiritually speaking, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening." So what I'm going to do is we're gonna we're gonna um, do something a little different. Um, I'm gonna ask my wife Amanda to come up here, and I'm going to ask her some questions concerning. The verses that we just read. So uh, as she makes her way up here. She's excited. She's excited about this. She when, I, when I put me out of my comfort when zone. When I put, put, gave her this idea, she was uh, ready to go. So we just, we just read some scriptures um, pertaining to wives towards their husband. Okay. And so the first question is, is why, why do you think God, um, God encourages women to emphasize, emphasize is that right, um, internal, internal character over external, I think I'm more nervous than she is, than uh, over external appearance? Um,
1: well, external appearance, you could have the most beautiful woman in the world, she could be mean, and ugly inside. Sorry, I do this every time. Um, but you, like, okay, just for an example, on my days off, if I don't go anywhere, you will not want to stop by my house. It is not a pretty sight. I have my sweats on. I have no makeup. My hair is just a mess. It's usually up on top of my head. Um, but those are the days that I spend time in the Word with God. I am praying in the Spirit, usually clean in the house, and that is what God wants that is beautiful
0: in his sight. And we we really live in a culture that external beauty is being promoted more and more and more it seems like. So this I think this is this just shows you again how relevant the Bible the Bible is. And the question I have is so what is this saying because a lot of a lot of Christians take this to the extreme. I mean, is it saying that we shouldn't be concerned about our physical health? We shouldn't care what we look like on the outside? Or, um, you know, or is it just talking about the primary, the primary concern should be the inward person?
1: You should absolutely take care of your outward appearance. I mean, you don't want to look like a slab. How can you um, <laughs> talk to people about Jesus and you, just, you don't look like anything they would want to be a part of? But by focusing on your spirit and your soul, that's what God wants, your heart. You fill that with the word of God and just spend time with him. And it actually comes out on the outside. Um, A couple of weeks ago, Kristen came home from work. She's our youngest daughter. And she was talking about a customer that came in. And she was asking Kristen if she went to church. And Kristen told her yes, and where she went to church. And um, they got around to that Kristen was, uh, with the name of our church, Caris, she was asking if Kristen knew who Andrew Womack was, because she watches him on TV. And Kristen's like, yeah, I'm actually going to college out there. And she was all excited and everything. Um, this lady's actually from Canada, so she's not even from the United States. And... She told Kristen, I could see God on you. So it, it just comes out physically, too.
0: Amen. Amen. Now you got me crying. So, so when he talks about, he's talking about hairstyles, he's talking about clothing, he's talking about jewelry, he's talking about all of this appearance that requires, and, and to me it seems like it requires a certain amount of income, gold jewelry and all this stuff like that. And that's one of the things that I find very interesting with the social media thing, you know, um, the amount of money, and the amount of time, and the amount of of uh, dedication it takes to um, constantly be these in, in influencers, it becomes a job. But it, it, it elevates it elevates this standard to women that is unattainable. Like a man just said, the house needs to be clean. These women aren't cleaning houses, and so you know what I mean. The the amount of money. I mean, who has time to spend all day at the spa? God bless you if you do. I wish I, Amanda could sp- spend all day at the spa, but that's, that's just not our lifestyle. That's not, that's not many people's lifestyle, is it? So, so um, what, what, do you, what do you think about what our culture is trying to aspire to?
1: Um, it's a lot of times unattainable. Like You see the filtered version of everything on social media. It's what they want you to see. You don't see behind the scenes. Um, like makeup and beauty regimens, it can get expensive. You just have to kind of look at where it's at in your budget. But by <laughs> by uh, filling yourself with God, by spending time in the word, it's free. It just takes some of your time. And that's what God wants. He just wants some of your time.
0: And I... I... I uh, can admit that when Amanda spends a significant amount of time with Jesus, she's very, very attractive. Yeah. And he, go, he, he talks about, now we're going to get into some nitty-gritty stuff here. He talks about rather the woman having a quiet and gentle spirit. What, what, does this, what does it mean? What does it look like for a woman to have a quiet and gentle spirit? And then also, what does it not look, look like?
1: Um. So when you're born again, you're filled with the fruit of the Spirit. By spending time in the Word, it brings it out in your life. You have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those things come out in your life. And that, I mean, if you just listen to all the ones I just listed, that is a gentle and quiet spirit. You're thinking before you're reacting. You're praying before you're giving advice. You're listening to Holy Spirit on what direction you should go in before just flying off the handle.
0: So kind of, is it, you think. Would you say that it's not honoring to be yelling and demanding to, to your husband?
1: No, it's not. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so the but but does it mean like the opposite of that? Does it mean that a woman shouldn't speak up? She shouldn't say anything. She shouldn't have. A,
1: No, you should absolutely have your own opinion. I mean, Chad likes to think that I should agree with everything he (laughs) says, and he might not like when I make my opinions known, but I wouldn't be me if I didn't have my own opinions. I know what I think, I know what I feel, I know what I believe, and it. I mean, I shouldn't just be a doormat and let him walk all over and make all my decisions for me. I should stand up for myself also.
0: Right uh-huh. on. Yep. You did a good job of it. And then, <laughs> and then, in my defense, when I come talk to her about an idea, I have spent hours and hours thinking through it. So when, so my flesh has a hard time when she contradicts some things that I, I've spent a long time think, thinking about, but the problem is is that she's always right <laughs> so so uh, so I am so thankful for it so it then he also talks about Sarah as a hopeful example for women what, what, do you, what do you think that has to do with things?
1: So we all know Sarah she was very beautiful, obviously she had kings after her, um, which Led to some issues with Abraham lying about who she was to him. It got her into some situations that I'm sure she did not want to be in. But she was a woman of God. She obeyed her husband. She trusted God, and God saw her through it. Hmm.
0: Yeah. You know, as I stand up here and I'm thinking, you know, as you look at that story of, there's positive and negative examples in Sarah's life and Abraham's life also. You know, you know what I'm saying? So you can le- learn the positive things, but you can also learn the, from the negative things that, that they experienced. I mean, we got a whole Arab and Jewish war because they had marital problems. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, Then he talks about why wives in relationship to the husband. Why is it important that everyone understands, but especially the women... That when the scriptures talk about husbands and wives, they're not talking in general about men and women. These are not principles for women in relationships in general to men. It's just in the context of marriage.
1: So my relationship with Chad as my husband is completely different than the relationship I have with my son, the relationship I have with my brother, the relationship I have with my male friends. There are boundaries that are set. I have a very intimate relationship with him. God actually compares the church, his relationship with the church, to the relationship of a husband and a wife, that it's a loving and intimate relationship. It's not one of friends or a son or a brother.
0: Right. What what do you think about, you know, I kind of mentioned a little bit about uh, certain Christians saying that all women are under the authority of men, like they're beneath men.
1: <laughs> they are subject to their husband. <laughs> right. Other men might feel that it's their obligation to set them straight or tell them what to do or whatever, but their final authority is their husband.
0: Amen. Amen. Thank you for doing this, <laughs> and thank you for putting up for me, with me for 25 years. <laughs> I love you. So that's kind of Peter's uh, instruction to women towards men. And Amanda was very nice and gentle. But then he goes into talking about instructions to men, to the wives. And I'm not so kind. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, he says, likewise. So again... it's similar to what we just read, right? God has instructions for the husband and He has instructions for the wife. He's not saying if your wife does this, then husbands do that. And if your wives don't do this, then you don't have to do that. You understand that? The wife is responsible in the sight of God for her conduct. And the husband is responsible in the sight of God for his conduct. If one or the other's not doing what God instructs, that does not not disqualify you from doing what God instructed you to do. Do you understand that? You need to pray to have courage to act like Jesus, even when the other one's acting like the devil. (laughs) Amen? And he says, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Live with your wives in an understanding way. This men, we struggle with this. What this means is it means living with empathy, with compassion, with sympathy. Looking at it from her perspective. We do not do this, men. Showing honor is equally important. Men and women both should show honor. Showing honor to women as a weaker vessel as the weaker vessel. It doesn't say she is a weak vessel or she is the weaker vessel. You're supposed to treat her as if she was. Let me tell you, I know my wife. She's not a weak vessel. She has went through things and done things physically, mentally, spiritually that were hard. And if she was weak, she would collapsed. But it says, men, you treat her. It's like this is precious. Treat her as precious. Treat her as like a, a valuable a, a, a vase or something that is so precious. How would you treat that? It says, showing honor to the woman as a weaker vessel since they are heirs with you in the grace of, God, a grace of life. Um, you're one, and so if you hurt her, you're hurting yourself. People don't understand that. When you hurt your spouse, when you hurt your wife, you're actually hurting and damaging yourself. This is just one little verse, but there is a lot to unpack here. First thing he says is understanding. And what that is, it's for the man to try to figure out what it's like to be her. This is why it takes Jesus. Now, you got to try to figure out what it's like to be her. Think for what is it like to live with me? (laughs) Think about that just for a moment, man. What would it be like to be married to you? I tell you, if I was married to me, one of us would die. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <What>? <laughs> because cause, cause we, it, it wouldn't work. It, it would be just too much. And I have to think about not just what is her character, but what is the life like having to live with me? It's looking at it from her perspective. Does your wife work? Does that produce stress, added stress in her life? Does she have kids? And is she really busy? Is she physically ill and struggling? Does she have added drama with extended family or parents getting older and needing attention? It's a husband. Trying to do something that men, frankly, most of the time are very poor at. And that's having empathy. And what empathy is, it's sitting in someone else's seat and seeing things from their perspective. Frankly, most men don't want their wives to be an inconvenience on their life. They want someone that's contributing to the betterment of their life. But understanding says, no, let me first sit in my wife's seat. Let me try to see things as she sees things. And let me try to determine what it's like to be her. So when I serve her, when I encourage her, I'm doing so in a way that's most beneficial to her. This, this is really the difference between being a servant and being selfish. The Bible has nothing good to say. You can't find one place in the Bible where it says that selfishness is a good thing. But you can find Scripture after Scripture after Scripture talking about the benefits of servanthood. And this is the way that the husband begins to serve his wife. He serves her by not being selfish. If he doesn't try to understand her, he's going to be selfish. Here's what I think. Here's what I want. Here's what I need. Here's how I feel. Here's how I see it. Serving is the opposite. How do you see it? How do you feel? What do you need? How can I learn to be more compassionate and understanding towards you? Then he talks as well to men about honoring the women as the weaker vessel. And I believe he's speaking here in a, to the a larger point of, you know, it's also physical. It's physical. In a general rule, most men use their physical strength to intimidate their wives. And this puts a wife in a very scary place that she should never be in, in her home. Very rarely does a man spend much of his time, think about it, men, how often do you spend thinking about, I feel unsafe, I'm in an unsafe place. But by our physical strength and our demeanor, we can make our wives feel unsafe, even in their own home. You know, the more I spend time with my wife and my daughters, I realize that women oftentimes don't feel the same way that men feel. They feel more vulnerable. Um, They feel like they could be overwhelmed. They feel like they could be abused. They feel like they could be harmed. They feel like they could be intimidated. They feel like they could be assaulted. Now think for a minute. If a man who is stronger is not for her, but against her. And all of a sudden he's not there to protect her from harm, but he's the the one that's most likely to do her harm. That puts the woman in a um, very horrific environment. It's almost like she's a prisoner of war. Peter is saying that this is how a husband's strength needs to be used. It needs to be used to protect, and it needs to be used to guard your wife. The husband does this by honoring his wife. So I'm going to give you some different ways that we can honor our wives, men. First one is honor her spiritually. What this means is you take the initiative as a spiritual leader of your home. You make sure everyone's got a Bible. When it's dinner time, you pray together. You ask questions. You have conversations. How's everyone doing? How can I pray for you guys? Anything you're thinking about? It also means that the man takes initiative to pray with his wife. Honey, how can I pray with you? Is there anything I can be praying about for you? This is the man taking the initiative to read the Bible, to pray, to pick a church, to lead the children. If God blesses you with children, and if God has a father leading, what it does, it really honors the wife because he's honoring the Lord. And it makes it a lot easier for the wife to honor the husband who's honoring the Lord. If he's following Jesus, it's a lot easier for her to come alongside him and walk together. Honor her emotionally. What this means is being empathetic. Considerate. Being emotionally present. <laughs> Some guys are not emotionally present. They don't ask, how are you doing? How can I pray for you? How was your day? And then actually listen. This means spending quality time together. Honor her physically. Physically. This is being protective. You know, when, she, when we're walking down the street, and let's say this is the street, Amanda doesn't walk on, on this side of me. She walks on this side of me. Why? Because if one of us is going to get by the hit by a car, it's not going to be her. It's taking those things into consideration. That's honoring your wife. That's, that's protecting her physically. Even when we go out to restaurants, you know, I'm that guy that likes to sit looking at the door. I always want to see who's coming in. I want, I want my back against the wall. I want to be the one to be able to get in between Amanda and anything that might be happening. I might be paranoid. And that might be my spiritual gift. I'm paranoid. But, uh, but I'm always trying to think about how I can keep her and my family safe. That's honoring her physically. I don't want her to have to defend herself. I don't want her to be in a dangerous situation. I want to make sure that she's physically okay. And that means a great deal to me. Honor sexually. This would include something called, men, ready? Non-sexual touch. If you don't know what that is, I'll explain it here in a little bit. See... (laughs) Because you don't know what the, men don't know what that is, and and I got to be very careful how I how I say this. I, don't worry, this isn't a rated our message. I did one of those years ago and probably made a mistake. But anyways, um, for men, sexuality is a lot like sports. Meaning, there's a goal, and I got to get to the end zone. I got to get to the goal, right? There's an end zone, I'm moving towards the end zone. And I don't think I need to say anymore. Man, you know what I'm talking about. The wife feels like she feels like every time he touches me, he's pushing me towards the same result. This is about controlling and disciplining yourself, men. Now that being said, what does this look like? Sometimes it looks like holding hands. I'm going to say something here. Men, if you're married and you do not take the initiative to hold your wife's hand, that irritates me to no end. I'm trying to think of a nice way to say it. Men, hold your wife's hand. Sometimes it means snuggling up on the couch or wherever. See, the woman was taken from the man's rib, right? So it's only natural that she'd want to snuggle up alongside you because that's home. Just ask your wife, honey, what what does non-sexual touch look like? Sometimes she'd be like, I just want a neck rub. I would love a foot massage. You could brush my hair and you could just sit with me and keep your hands to yourself. <laughs> now man, I'm not advocating any of this, but I'm just saying maybe this is something we should pray about. <laughs> right? Honoring sexually is also being a one-woman man. It's the wife knowing that he's faithful to the end. I don't need to keep checking on Him. That, that, in, that In our day, a lot of women are worried. Who is He communicating with on social media? Who is He communicating with privately? How is He conducting Himself when I'm not in the room? Women want to know I can trust Him. If I'm not looking, He's not wandering. If, if I'm present, he's, he's not straying. If I'm not present, He's not straying. He's devoted to me. And he's faithful to me. That's honoring your wife sexually. Honoring her verbally. This would include the volume. Sometimes a man intimidates through volume. It's part of him using his physical strength. Because as soon as he raises the volume, he's also usually approaching physically. And that puts up red flags that the wife might be in harm. She might be in danger. So as a man, especially when you're having a really difficult conversation, you need to watch your volume. That's one thing that I need to do. It also is watching the tone. It's watching the words. It also is watching nicknames. You know, We tend to give nicknames to people that we love the most, and we give nicknames to those that we hate the most. Sometimes in marriage, you, you got really cute nicknames, and then sometimes you have really damaging nicknames. Sometimes when you're fighting, you want to harm your spouse, so you pull out some of those nicknames. That's negative, and you want to use it. And the Bible says in Proverbs that certain people use words like a like a sword thrust. That there's certain words that literally are like daggers to an individual. That there's certain statements that are literally that does damage like a sword to the heart of people. And when we pull those out and we use them, we, ass- we are assaulting someone. And they recoil. And they recoil because you hurt them. Sometimes men will say words don't hurt people. Hurt only happens physically. Now, sticks and stones might break my, will break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That is absolutely untrue. Words can do a lot of damage, especially when it's from the husband. I think if all men were honest, we have all said things to our wives that we would be furious if someone said to our daughters. Honoring her financially. Some men are just hyper control freaks. And the way that they... Exercise control is through finances. Meaning sometimes a man won't work very hard and won't seek to provide for his family. He puts all the burden on his wife. She has needs. The kids have needs. And the dad doesn't really seem to feel any of the burden. This, this is really prevalent in the culture that we live today. He transfers the burden to his wife. That is not honoring her financially. And to be very frank, some guys are just lazy. Some guys are very selfish. Some guys—they got the new car, and the wife drives the beater. They've got the hobbies, and she doesn't even have a functional home. You know those guys? He's got the bass boat. He's got the club, the golf clubs. He's got the hunting rifles. He's got the fishing gear. And the house is falling apart. Her car is falling apart. They're doing dishes by hand because the dishwasher's broken, and it's not a priority for him to fix it. I had a conversation just this morning. And George went, went appliance shopping. And they went for a refrigerator and came home with a refrigerator and an oven. Why? Because he's seen that she wanted it. That's exactly what I'm talking about here. Men then get really selfish and they'll say things like, well, I work. It's my money. No, no, and no. You are one. You are the same. It's like the wife gives birth to the kids and because you didn't give birth to the kids, they're not yours. You're a team. Your money, is, is, and, it, and especially for us, when, we, when, we, when we, our kids were little, I was a sole income provider. But honoring your wife financially is saying we're both working together. Sometimes one is out of the home, and sometimes one is in the home, but we're a team, working for the same common goal. This means that financially we need to have one budget that we need, and we need to come and agree on it. And we need to have dual eyes, dual optics on the bank account. Some women don't even have access to the bank account. Some women don't even know what's in there. That's not honoring her financially. What that is, it's controlling her financially. Then honoring her practically. This is living with a wife in an understanding way. This is architecting the home and the schedule and the budget and the lifestyle that works for the husband and works for the wife. Otherwise, the husband says, hey, let's buy this house. This has a great big garage. I'd love to have this garage. And the wife says, but it doesn't work for the kids or it doesn't work for, for meals and entertaining. It's trying to architect your life. It's architecting your home. That works for both of you. And, so, and some of that's very, very, very practical. You know, we're getting older in our age, me and Amanda, and, you know, the kids are moving out of the house and stuff, and I'm thinking, now's the time to buy fun. You know, the next vehicle, maybe it'll be a fun vehicle. And Amanda says, well, is the grandkids going to be able to fit in it? You know, she, she said, these are things that I've got to take into consideration. And I'm thinking, maybe we've got to have two cars then. <laughs> but but, but you, know, you, you know what I mean? We, we, you, it's working together. It's very practical, and it's, and it's in an honoring way. These are things that we don't think about, which, which is um, it's just practical decisions in, in our life. Where do the kids go to school? You know, what house do we get? What car do we buy? You're honoring each other, and for the husband, it's, it's inviting the input of the wife because she's probably more pra- thinking more practically than you are, right? Amen. And then honoring her parentally. Honoring her parentally. This is bringing a unified front to the kids. <laughs> to the kids. And let me just say this. If you have a blended home, This is even more difficult. If you have a blended home, I'm going to tell you that if you have chosen to remarry, your husband, your wife, is the most important, number one in your life. The kids always come second. Always come second. The kids will grow up. They'll move out. Some of them will change their name but you will be together forever. The husband, the wife are number one. And the kids try to divide and conquer. They try to divide and conquer. That's their strategy. If mom says no, they run to dad. And if he says yes, what do they do? They run back to their mom and says, you've been overruled. Right? That's what kids do. So it's mom and dad having a unified front. If mom says no, dad says no. Dad can't say, well, you know, I'd like to say yes, but you know how your mom is. That's dividing and conquering. Also, it's being involved in the parenting as a husband and father. And it's also being involved in the discipline. Sometimes dad's the fun one. (laughs) And then... When it comes to discipline, he, he's like, well, that's your mom's job. And the reason why it's your mom's job is because when you grow up and go to therapy and you're, and you're complaining to the therapist, I want it to be about your mom and not about me. <laughs> Honoring her parent, uh, parentally is, is being involved in raising the children and instructing the children and cor- the correction of the children and, and not pushing it all off on the mom. And what that means is, well... It's not speaking ill of the mother in front of the children. Some of you probably grew up in families where mom—it was—it was was like mom versus dad, and the children—you had to pick a side. That's not honoring parentally, and then honoring her consistently. This is lastly, we're closing up here, guys. I know. I preach, long, I preach long messages. Get over it. Honoring her consistently. God is faithful and God is unchanging. One of the things we love about God is he's going to be the same tomorrow as he was today, as he was yesterday. The Bible says he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's not like tomorrow God's going to get really angry and decide we're not forgiven anymore. Honoring consistently, it allows faithfulness into the relationship. One day the husband's a really happy guy, and the next day he's a really angry guy. That's not being faithful. It's not being consistent. One day he's very generous, the next day he's very stingy one day he's very trusting the next day he's very controlling it puts the marriage into inconsistency and it, which makes it hard hard because every day the wife has to wake up and basically ask herself okay who am i married to today this happens when men are under stress pressure from work financial pressures and when that happens in our life we have this we have we have this tendency to shift over to the dark side. What you need to do is you need to identify those burdens, those pressures in your life, and you need to learn to cast that care over onto Jesus. What you do is you come home and you cast that care over onto your family. And they can't carry the load, just like you can't. So as a result, this, this makes it very difficult, difficult for the wife. She doesn't know who she's going to be married to from day to day. This is what Peter talks about here where he says, you are joint heirs of grace of life so that your prayers won't be hindered. Now I know we've had a long message, but tune in to the end. What he's saying is that, that number one, the most important thing for your marriage and your family is the anointing of God. The number one thing, the most important thing for your marriage is the grace of God. The anointing of God on your marriage. The most important thing is not your income. The most important thing is not your lifestyle. The most most important thing other than anything is the grace of God. The one thing that makes a great marriage and family is the anointing of God on that relationship. When God created Adam and Eve, before, he did anything, before they did anything, it says that God blessed them. God blessed them. And it says that God wants to bless you. And God wants to bless your marriage. Peter is talking about the anointing of God residing on a home. That God literally helps us as we seek to live for Christ in our home. Secondly, For a man, if you do this, if you don't do this, excuse me, God won't hear your prayers. It says right there that God will not hear your prayers, that your prayers will be hindered if you are not doing this. Every man knows that we need help from the Lord. And what we do is we pray, God, help me. Help us. And He says, for the man that does not honor his wife, that he will not hear your prayers. Why? I have three daughters. I have three daughters. One of them's married. And let's just say down the road, all three of them are, are married. And one of the husbands come up to me and they say, you know what? I love your daughter greatly. I want to be the best husband I can be. I want to lead. I want to provide. I want to protect. I want to do all these things. Will you help me do that? Me as a father, what do you think I'm going to say? I'm going to say yes. And I'm going to do everything I can to help that man. But let's say that one of the other husbands come to me and say, you know what? I'm very selfish. I feel like life's all about me. Um, I, I want to I want to hurt, I want to damage my, your daughter. How do you think I'm going to react to that? You know, what's my answer as a daughter to that? Absolutely no, and I will come against you. Before a woman is our wife, she's God's daughter. this is why your prayers are, un- are hindered. You might say, well, that's my wife, but God's like, actually, no, that's, that's my daughter. And if you bless my daughter, I'll hear your prayers, and I'm going to help. But if you're going to hurt my daughter, I will not allow you to accomplish that mission. This might be very controversial. And I'm not saying that this is always the case, but there are some men your what, your life is falling and failing because you're not honoring God's daughter. There are some men your health is failing because you are not honoring his daughter. There are some men your finances are failing because you are not honoring His daughter. There are some men who feel like God isn't listening to them because, because God isn't listening to them because you're not honoring His daughter. There are some men that feel like God is far away, that God has abandoned them and left them. No, it's just that you're not honoring His daughter. So He can't help you do the things that you're doing because if they are harming His daughter, He's going to be loyal to her not to you. He's going to be loving her and not answering your prayers. If you're not, jo- if, if, if you're not joining Him and blessing her, He can't participate in your life. Many men get very frustrated. And this is where they get very embittered against God. They start blaming everyone and everything but themselves. I've said this many, many times from up here. If if there's an issue, if there's a problem in my life, 99.9% of the time, I created it. I'm the issue. And 100% of the time in my life, God has never been the issue. God is not the issue. They start blaming everyone, everything. They start blaming God. Men get angry. They, they, they become a victim. They become defensive. They do the blame game. It's the wife's fault. It's the kid's fault. It's culture's fault. It's my boss's fault. It's the government's fault. It's God's fault. Have you ever met these men? God doesn't even hear my prayers. And the guys can actually blame shift to God. And God, look at my horrible life. What kind of God are you? And he's like, I'm a God who loves my daughter. And if you would start there, I would help you fix the rest. Many men are trying to get their whole life together, but what God is saying is, my daughter is your first priority. That relationship with her, that loving her, that protecting her, providing for her, being emotionally present for her, being faithful to her, being sympathetic towards her. That is number one priority. And when this happens, that allows your prayers to be heard because if you're trying to love my daughter, I will love you and help you to love her all the better. You know, I think I'll just leave it right here. There's a lot more we could say. But men, you know. You know. But there is a grace that God wants to put on you and your marriage. To have the marriage that God intended. That's filled with joy. That's filled with Happiness that has peace. God can transform your marriage if we will humble ourselves before God and just simply learn to honor one another.
1: Amen you've been listening to a message from Caris new testament church for more information or to contact us go to www.charisntc.org and remember you are deeply loved highly favored and destined to reign in christ jesus